by the way. I know this is not a good statement to make, but without therapy, humanity is limited because it doesn't go beyond the possibilities that are there for the world. Mm. It's repeating its old script over and over again. This is Three People in Your Head, a podcast about getting the best out of yourself and others. Co-hosted by Matt Taylor and myself, John Fleming. In this episode, we speak with Leonard Campos. Leonard is a retired psychologist, transactional analyst with over 50 years as a practitioner and a psychotherapist in redecision therapy. We discuss his training in TA, TA's use in addressing social issues and social injustice, and how through partnering with others that share our common mission, TA might have a greater impact. Leonard, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for coming on with us. Thank you for inviting me. Yeah, it's great to have you here. Leonard, you might just start by introducing yourself, share your name, where you're from, a little bit about your role in the TA community. Okay, I'm Leonard Campos, born in Arecibo, Puerto Rico. My real name is Leonardo Pedro Gregorio Campos y Roman. <laughs> I'll start practicing. <laughs> That's the name on my birth certificate. So anyway, yeah, we'll be multicultural. Right. We can start with how I learned about transactional analysis. Time is limited. You don't want my whole autobiography. <laughs> but born in Puerto Rico, came to New York, went to City College of New York. Then I was drafted into the Army for two years, went to Michigan State, and got a PhD in clinical psychology. Right. While I was at Michigan State, John Hurley, who was an assistant professor, said, there's this guy out there in California, Eric Byrne, who claims he's invented a whole new personality theory, calls it transactional analysis. And John then put up three circles, the three ego states, the parent, adult, and child. Mm. That was 1958. Yeah. I looked at that and I thought, hogwash. <laughs> <laughs> that was my first reaction, of course. I did not know that later on when I met Bob and Mary Goulding, that by integrating transactional analytic concepts with gestalt therapy, in other words, experiential therapy, it became a very powerful tool for helping people change their life if they want to change their life. Yeah. So I took to that with enthusiasm compared to how I first reacted to TA. And I hate saying TA because people then when they read it, they read TA. Yeah. <laughs> then they go to the websites and they look for TA, up comes some Chinese restaurant. But anyway, transactional analysis is actually a very, very powerful tool yeah. when used experientially. Mm. When you get people to stay in the present, go deep inside, contact their true self, their real self, which is in the form of feelings, they find a powerful source of energy. 
that helps them change. Mm. So we put that energy in the child ego state. That's where a lot of energy resides. Mm. By the time people go through parenting and they have adjusted to the parental messages, the injunctions, attributions, they lose a very essential, powerful part of themselves. Could I just ask you to clarify what those two words mean, just for the public who might be listening, the injunctions and attributions that you talk about that happens through parenting? Okay. Injunctions come in the form of the don'ts. Yeah. So many people will have relatively benign injunctions from don't cross the street without looking, but it's not the kind of injunction that actually determines how you're going to live. Yeah. So if I pick one injunction like don't enjoy, you will find that in many hardworking people who don't get joy out of their work and yeah. they lose the truth that work can actually be play, especially when it's experienced through the joyful child part of you. Right. That's an injunction. And attribution is what you attribute to the child, like you're really important or you're going to be a great person someday. And of course, they can turn negative, right? You get yeah. a co-parent who says, you're just like your father. You're never going to make it. So they're pretty powerful because the child is literal minded. Yeah. Up to the age of five, the child takes everything literally. Mm, thank you. Yeah, does that answer your question? Mm, yeah. Then when you get into therapy, and I yeah. believe everybody should have therapy, I mean, good therapy. So I can use myself as an example, because when I first got into the training in redecision therapy, which is an integrated model, it integrates TA with Gestalt, and it requires a behavioral criterion of change. Mm. Okay? It's an integrated model. Yeah. So when I went to my first training session, I was working as a psychologist. I was in charge of personality classification for the California Youth Authority, where we classified young people by personality. I was surprised when the federal government gave the institution I was working for a $5 million grant to compare cognitive behavioral therapy with transactional analysis. Oh, wow. Really? And the research required us to go to Bob and Mary Goulding for training in their branch of transactional analysis eventually called redecision therapy. They discovered that when people go deep inside and contact the little child in them, they come across decisions that children made when they didn't have enough adult to know what they were deciding. So it was very, very powerful experience. My first introduction I was empathizing with a woman who was crying about how her parents treated her. Yeah. 
And Bob Golden looked at me and said, what do your tears say? Well, that's a gestalt intervention. Mm -hmm. And you put words to your tears. Yeah. Of course, like an adult, I said, oh, I'm just empathizing with this lady. I feel her pain. And he turns to me and he says, what about your pain? Mm. What are your tears saying? Well, that's the way to kickstart the little kid. Because I immediately went into a sad little boy and began to reveal the pain that I felt as a child. It's a very powerful method to get people to realize that within themselves, they have the power to change. And that's how they discover it. Mm. They discover that within the little kid, there's a tremendous source of power for change. And of course, with adult assistance and with parental nurturance, because you need all three parts of yourself, all three parts of your personality, your parent, the adult in you, and the little kid in you. Yeah. Leonard, you've mentioned a couple of times how much energy is in the child ego state. When you say energy, and I might be wrong, I'm wondering if you're referring to physis. Is that the same energy that you're talking about or is it different? Well, the energy I'm talking about is organic. And of course, yes, but you're referring to a universal source of energy that belongs to the trees, the flowers, the animals, everywhere that grows creatively. Of course, it's spicy, but I'm talking about the energy within you. Mm. And all you have to do is take a look at the little kids. That's all you have to do. Yeah, it's true. <laughs> if you have children, you can see their energy, you can feel their energy, and yeah. with a lot of joy with it. Yeah. Unfortunately, a lot of people lose their joy. Yeah. So I'm talking about energy that one can actually experience. Yes. Yeah. Okay. yeah. Yeah. When you say that there are lots of people lose their joy, are you suggesting that redecision therapy can help people find it again? Oh, yes, of course. You bet. It's a journey of discovery when you really discover your true self. Mm. Remember now, we've all been socialized. Huh? So it takes a determination, though to want to change though. If you're perfectly satisfied with the way you are, you don't need therapy. <laughs> yeah. What if you're not perfectly satisfied but not willing to change or take responsibility that you can change? What happens in that dynamic? Well, that's a good question because it symbolizes the problem with people. Yeah. There is passivity and inertia in people. Yeah. And a lot of people do not want to bother, okay? This is a pretty complex world. People don't need stress, okay? When you invite a person to reflect, contemplate, that takes some work. And a yeah. lot of don't want to work. But you know the world's a mess. So we know... The world does need changing, and it comes first from people changing. Yeah, yeah, it's true. And so is that what led to you from that first experience of TA with that intervention with Bob Golding? 
Is that what led you to then study it further? Well, I was in training. That was part of my training. Right. And when you're trained in redecision therapy, you have to experience the therapy. So it's an ongoing process. Yeah. Leonard, you mentioned earlier that the reason you began this training was because the federal government wanted to do a study in compare and contrast cognitive behavioral therapy with transactional analysis. What was the outcome of this study that the government conducted? That's a good question, but (laughs) there's a 5,000 page. (laughs) Can you give me a five word answer? (laughs) Well, one of the things that was statistically significant difference was that staff were happier. Mm. They enjoyed their work more. As far as recidivism goes, we beat them on that. In other words, they're they're coming back, you know, repeating their offense and then coming back. We beat them on that. But recidivism is not a function of institutions. It's a function of our society. What happens when they're released? Who they go back to? Do they have a job? Do they have enough love in their life? There are too many factors. So I can't really answer your question in detail. Yeah. I do have the book. Drives all the differences. Interesting, because I've never heard a study like that. I'm sure they've been done the world over, but I've never come across it before. So yeah. it's very interesting. Because one of the things that Matt and I are really interested in, and one of the reasons we began the podcast is because we felt as students that TA doesn't always get the recognition that it deserves. So we're really interested in talking about the comparisons and the research. And I noticed that in the questionnaire you filled out that you actually mentioned that CBT is an evidence-based modality and that you feel sometimes that YTA isn't as popular or well-known because it doesn't have the research to back it up often. What are your thoughts on that? Well, first of all, It is evidence-based, and there is a lot of research to back it up. Mm. The problem is there's a politics in the marketing of therapy, okay? CBT, cognitive behavioral therapy, is a highly aggressively marketed school Mm. therapy that has convinced our culture, the institutions, the insurance companies, the schools that they are the research-based school of therapy. Mm. Marketing, keep that in mind. One of the problems, though, is TA tends to perpetuate its insularity. It doesn't reach out. It doesn't partner with other professions. As a psychologist, we share the same missions that TA have. Yeah. But TA doesn't reach out to the psychology organizations Mm. in general. Yeah. Have you got any thoughts about why the TA community doesn't reach out? Do you have any thoughts about why that culture exists within TA? Well, it's not a simple answer you're looking for, of course. (laughs) (laughs) We're going to get a lot of that this evening, I think. Family is family. (laughs) I mean... Uh, because of its underlying philosophy of okayness. Yeah. 
an acceptance. We have a bond. We're a wider family throughout the planet. Mm. And we like each other, especially if we maintain our principles of okayness and accept people as they are within limits because there are people out there who will make you believe that this is not a very okay world. Well, come on now. There are wars, there's hatred, there's hate crimes, there's racism. Okay, I'm going to get into a polarity. We can be splendiferous, but (laughs) awful. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, it's true. It's a polarity, but we all live within those polarities. Yeah. I do believe, though, that we have the key to world peace. I believe that. In Uh, TA? Oh, yeah, we do. Tell us Uh, more. Well, I don't know if you've seen my articles on the transactional analysis of war and peace. Back in 2014, I wrote that. I wrote about cultural scripting of forever wars. And I used the United States as an example. Yeah. It goes way back. It's the erroneous thinking, contaminated thinking of world leaders. George Washington was quoted at the very beginning of the colonial era when we were fighting the British, that the best way to keep the peace is to prepare for your enemy. Now, that's polarized thinking. Yeah. You have to have an enemy to have a war. So why not create an enemy? Yeah. If the United States spends, what, $753 billion on the military, it's got to use it, right? It doesn't want to waste money. And what are we going to do with soldiers if they don't have any fight? Call it peace anxiety. We're too anxious about peace because we have wrong thinking. Right. Wow. That's very sobering. I don't think you want me to get into that further. (laughs) (laughs) Well, maybe we could talk about some of the other areas that you're passionate about. (laughs) Maybe something more uplifting. (laughs) (laughs) Our TA can change the world. Well, before we move on quickly, I just want to mention, because it came up in another interview we did recently, Leonard, about how TA sometimes doesn't have a political voice. And we explored then how that could be because of what happened with Byrne when he got arrested and he was questioned for his being a socialist or accused of being a socialist. And because you just said that you think that TA has the answer to world peace. But do you think that there might be something in that comment that Byrne made that TA will never be political? That was the statement that he apparently said, TA will never be political. Do you think that interferes with, gets in the way with the fact that TA might help us heal the world? Well, again, that is another erroneous thought because everything's political. Mm. Power pervades everything. Yeah, man. And whoever has the power is ruling the world. So transactional analysis comes in with an apolitical philosophy. That doesn't mean it's not political. I mean, it is political. Yeah. It's always been political. I introduced uh, social responsibility into transactional analysis. Right. Because some people thought, well, we don't want to be political. We're professional. We're scientific. (laughs) 
we're always political. Yeah. Anywhere where there is a process of influence, you guys are political, whether you like it or not. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> absolutely. <laughs> it's true. So I have been trying to get transactional analysts to be socially responsible for years. And we finally got a committee on the ITAA. We had one early back in 1975. I was in the social action committee. Yeah. But it goes way back where politics not a bad word. Yeah. Uh, no, it's not. So it has to be political. Yeah. How do you change anything without power? Yeah, very true. Okay, mm -hmm. so you want something light. <laughs> no. Actually, not necessarily. <laughs> actually, I think what you're talking about, because we have seen over 2020 an immense amount of social unrest due to what has been described as discrimination or injustice. And that is something that has been touched upon on previous episodes, but we know that you've got a lot of passion about this. And so, yeah, we'd love to hear more about your thoughts on how TA can assist with addressing social injustice and what it is about TA that enables that. Okay, well... That's a good question. And you have what? How many? Two more hours left? <laughs> We've got a bit more time. <laughs> as long as it takes, Leonard. <laughs> we'll cut out the light stuff and we'll keep this. Well, you probably know that the use of the term social justice can be very superficial. It's not necessarily used in any depth dimension. Everybody co-ops it. You know, the churches talk about all the work in social justice. And nowadays, lots and lots of people are talking about social justice because of racism, sexism, yeah. ageism, you name it. It's part of the contamination, okay? It's parental contamination of the adult yeah. where the thinking, unfortunately, turns negative, critical, and by the way, I know this is not a good statement to make, but without therapy, humanity is limited because yeah. it doesn't go beyond the possibilities that are there for the world. Mm. It's repeating its old script yeah. over and over again. Leonard, just before you continue, could you say a little bit more about what contamination is for people? people who might not know what ego state contamination is, just in lay terms. I've got this booklet here from my book. Uh, you've seen this? Yes. Oh, yeah. Introduce yourself to TA. In here, I have a diagram because to answer your question, you have to draw. Yes. You have to show people. And, and what we can do, actually, is because this is auditory, we can put these diagrams on the website so that people can access them. Yeah. Yeah. You'll notice the parent can contaminate the adult thinking and the child can contaminate the adult thinking. Mm. Yeah. yeah. Parent comes prejudices, okay? And from the child come false beliefs, fictions, delusions, and so on. Yeah. yeah. So is this, Leonard, where through conditioning and socialization we pick up thoughts and beliefs and then we don't question them when we're adults so we might hear when we're a child that 
I don't know. I'm trying to come up with something that's not too controversial. A certain social group is. Yeah, a certain social group are bad people. And then we never question that because it's what our father used to say. And we believe dad used to say. Right. Yeah. So the answer to your question requires the drawing of diagrams. Mm. Yeah. Get people to visualize what yeah. communication is. But in our head, you guys are the experts. We have an awful lot of false beliefs. And yeah. unless you actually confront those in therapy, yeah. you're just not going to give them up. You're not going to give them up unless the proper setting. The group therapy is very important. And of course, I don't know if you have had any training in redecision therapy, but it requires chair work. Yeah. Where you put your parents in the chair. And you actually have a dialogue with your parents, yeah. which places, mm. and you can speak as a child and say what you want to say to your parents, and you may never have had permission to do that. Yeah. So now in therapy, you have permission, the group is there for support, you've got your group leaders who help you experience that dialogue. Yeah. And if you discover yourself making a decision, you can change it because now you have sufficient adult in you. Yeah. And you're saying without that work, without that therapy, people will continue to be contaminated, have these prejudices that they've received from culture and from their parents and authority figures. I guess what you're saying is we've got to make therapy more available. Is that right? Well, of course, I'm not sure that that's possible, but <laughs> people don't like the change. You know that. Yeah. They're hurting. Yeah. If you're not hurting, eh, why should I change? Yeah. But it is true if we were in a culture. See, I wrote an article on this issue. If you can give people the references to my articles, there are a lot of answers there. Yeah. And so I find myself very restricted because I can't really adequately, I can't adequately answer. Yeah. Yeah. I appreciate that. It's a complex yeah. situation. Yeah. And we put the negative there on the contamination. Remember, there is a blending of the parent with the adult that's positive. Yeah. But contamination is a term used for people who are affected negatively yeah okay but remember from a parent comes some very excellent values people are okay the basic i'm okay you're okay stance yeah it's part of why people love ta yeah we may not always practice it obviously <laughs> but at least we carry it around in our head you're okay and i'm okay it can be trivialized, but nevertheless, we stand firm that we must accept one another before we can change anybody. And what is it about that aspect of your work? Why did you start to write about these topics within the world of TA, the social injustice and working with TA and changing the world? Well, everything comes from us. I wouldn't be interested in social justice if I did not have the experience of social injustice. Yeah. 
why would I care? Yeah. When I grew up at, in New York City as a Puerto Rican, I experienced the racism against Puerto Ricans. So we talk about the racism against the blacks, but there was a time when a lot of us had to experience prejudice. Yeah. And of course, we were motivated to want to question it and change it. When I came to California as a psychologist, I noticed there were children working in the fields, Mexican children who were supposed to have been in school. So hell, I just raised hell. Really? And of course, in those days, I just ranted and raved. I wasn't very smooth. <laughs> that comes with age, does it? <laughs> <laughs> but you have to stand up to what is wrong in this world. And now with the people involved in electronics and iPads and cell phones and so on, everybody's distracted. Mm. I always tell people, go join a march. Do something active. Take action. Right. But it does come from inside a person. Yeah. And of course it comes from me. Oh, you became a psychologist. Is that because you had something wrong with you when you were a little kid or what? No, of course not. Psychology is simply the study of people. Anyway, I'm trying to find a positive link here. <laughs> well, it seems to me when you talked right at the beginning of the episode about the energy in the child, you seem to have tapped into that from my experience of you here on the podcast. There seems that you have a lot of energy. Well, thank you. And you were obviously around the TA world in the early days. Did you meet Eric Byrne himself? Oh, yeah, yes, of course. Oh, okay. you did? Wow. Yeah. And I went to a few of the social psychiatry seminars. Yeah. Did some presentations. And I loved Eric Byrne. He somehow or other radiated permission to people. When I was debating with Paul McCormick, should we publish this? He said, go publish it. And I said, okay, well, we're going to make only a few copies. He says, no, make a thousand copies. <laughs> really? So, yeah, I knew him not closely. Yeah. We weren't pals or buddies, but uh, I was one of the first 30 teaching members. Oh, wow. Of ITAA. And Eric Byrne was on my examining committee, and Paul McCormick, and I believe Jack Doucet. Yeah. Thinking if Steve Cartman, I don't have a memory for it. Yeah. I got my teaching membership back in 1970, clinical membership in 68. Yeah. And, oh, yeah, I was around in those early days. And, of course, in those days, you talk about energy. <laughs> <laughs> Eric Byrne discovered gold. So, naturally, we were able to spread the word about TA and train people until... 1977, we were at our peak of almost 10,000 members. Really? Wow. And then uh, Bill Holloway in 77, about that time, who was the president, said, hey, you know, too many people are popularizing TA. We have got to professionalize it. Uh. And, so, and that's when the professional movement came in and the popularization started to fade away. And of course, so did the membership. 
Yeah. Yeah. And so do you think the balance swung too far the other way, as in much more professional, but fewer people being aware or working with TA? Because you had to pass exams. Yeah. I mean, a lot of people dropped out because they didn't want to study for okay. the clinical exam or the teaching exam. or They wanted to practice because they already got their degree, you know. I mean, if you've already got your master's in counseling or your PhD in psychology, why do you need an exam, another exam? So a lot of people started to rebel. But the examination process did professionalize transactional analysis. Mm. Interesting. Leonard, you said that you say to people these days, go out and march, do something active. What did you march for? Or what have you marched for? I've marched uh, for Black Lives Matter. Mm. And I've marched against the immigration ICE. I don't know. Yeah, the detention. Uh, I've marched against them, with immigrants. And I'm active in many movements. If I remember, I'm 88. Oh, yeah. So... I'm not about to do an awful lot. (laughs) (laughs) The reason I ask is because marching for me, there's something important for that and me. Because growing up in rural Ireland as a gay man, when I used to see people marching at pride parades, it gave me a lot of permission to be me. But I'm only just kind of connecting the dots to that now and about how important it is for people to go out and march, no matter what it's about, because there might be a young person somewhere that sees you marching, whatever the cause is. It could have a profound impact on them. Yeah. It's not the most powerful way to go. If you can go to Congress and give a talk to Congress, you have more power. Yeah. But you take power wherever you can. Yes. Yeah. You learn about influence, the art of influence. How do you influence people? Yeah. If that's all you have is protest marches, then join them anyway, because incrementally it might all add up, you know. So, yes, you have to take action. There's no doubt about it. And if you're incapacitated in some way, then write. Write articles. Get a voice. Put a voice to your protest. The world is so unjust. You have to speak up. You have to. Yeah. Most people are passive. They work, go home, have dinner, watch television, go to bed, breakfast, go to work, come home, have dinner, watch television, go to bed. No. No, thank you. (laughs) Come on now. Yeah. The world needs you. (laughs) It really does. You just got to get out there. And we all know about the horror of Yemen and Syria, and I won't do a downer. Let's just keep it up. Keep, <laughs> try, to, try to keep your spirits up, okay? I love this, though. I think I find it really energizing. And I yeah. think part of that is your energy mm. feeds what's going on here. It's clear that your maturity has not diminished that spirit. It's fantastic. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah, I love yeah. it. And actually, that thread has run throughout this podcast where you're talking about 
therapy. It's about you choosing to do the work. People can receive it, but they've got to want it. And then it's very similar. It's what we've talked about, I think, a lot is about taking action. Yeah, you bet. You bet. Mm. Yeah. And TA is a lot about that, isn't it? It's about choice, the adult ego state choosing. Of course. Yeah. Fantastic. I'm struck as well, Leonard, about how you talking about standing up and taking action. I never get a sense of rebellion in the way you talk about it, which often it can be interpreted as when people protest or they march that they rebel. But the way you talk about it, it doesn't feel like rebelling. It feels very authentic, different from rebelling. And it doesn't sound like people wanting to create trouble because sometimes I think marching and protesting or having a voice, people interpret that as troublemakers, people that want to break the peace. I'm a troublemaker. Yeah, good. Not a negative. (laughs) (laughs) But with a, yeah, with great positive intent. You've got to be a troublemaker. (laughs) (laughs) I love it. I love it. (laughs) So, Leonard, if we are going to wrap up this podcast, we have a lot of students in the TA world who listen to this podcast who are new to the field. Hopefully, we've got a lot of people who are already in the field and have been for a while. If you had a message for them, what would it be? Wow, you asked a very complex question. (laughs) 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 Only one message? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, what would be the one thing? I listened to a podcast recently. You said, what is your one golden rule? And often that's a really difficult question. I understand that. But if you had to have a message, the students particularly of TA. Well, I've sent out my messages through my writings. Yeah. And that's quite a challenge you're throwing at me. (laughs) (laughs) This is podcast. (laughs) But what's really important is that you have courage. Yeah. If you look at how other institutions, organizations work, churches, they're always pushing hope. And so... A lot of people live with false hope. And what we need is courage. That's what brings about change. That means you have to deal with your fear. Okay? Admit you're afraid. But you do it anyway. Great. Great message. Great message. There you go. Thank you. Perfect. <laughs> Leonard, I feel like we could just spend all day chatting with you. I love your energy. <laughs> I feel the same way. I feel like we could go on for another two hours at least. Easily. We should meet again next week. <laughs> it's okay. wonderful. Thank you for inviting me. This is a great opportunity. Mm. Thank you for giving us your time and knowledge and experience. Yeah. Okay. Thank you, John. Thank you, Matt. Thank you. As always, if you found anything in today's episode interesting, please feel free to reach out. You can visit our website, which has lots of information and TA resources, transactionalanalysispodcast.com. You can connect with us on all major platforms such as Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. And you can email us at threepeopleinyourhead at gmail.com using the number three rather than the word. If you haven't already, please follow us on Apple Podcast and Spotify. 
and we'd be really grateful if you could leave us a review. Thanks for listening. Thank you.